Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir. I know who I am. Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I have a plan. I like this shit. You know what's off, bro? It is your destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week, we are going to be tackling one of the most divisive films of the year, right Lee? Sure. Why? I have no idea. (laughs) But we're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's mother. Let's get into this. This is uh, one we were kind of bullied into doing. Absolutely. (laughs) Literally the week before, we were like, we're not fucking doing this shit. Yeah, we don't care. Look at that. Like, I've heard there's too much hype. There's too much hype, man. I'm not touching it's, this. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. You're absolutely right. I hadn't put my finger on why the fuck I didn't want to. I didn't care. I, I hadn't watched any of the, the, the trailers. I'd seen the posters. No. The posters were kind of cool. I, I seen a teaser, like six seconds of Jennifer Lawrence walking down a staircase. <laughs> I was like, Ooh. I don't know if it's for me, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I don't know. I mean, it was so the vitriol, the backlash to all of this. I couldn't believe it. And it got to the point where I tried to avoid as much as I could because I, I didn't want any leaked information. I wanted to go in with a, with a proper mindset. What was going yeah. on? And I mean, I'm who we're supposed to be excited for a new Darren Aronofsky film. Let's be honest. I mean, he's a really good filmmaker. He's he he's gotten people nominated for multiple awards. Uh, I really like The Wrestler. I like Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like The Fountain. I know that's not a popular choice, but I think that the film craft in there is actually really good. I'm not a big fan of Requiem for a Dream. I've seen it twice, and at the same time, I'm like, well, whatever. But I missed I missed the chaos of Pi. You know, his first film, uh, even if it was a student film, uh, well, I mean, not, not really a student film. You could see that he was really, really good at that time. There is a lot mm-hmm. of chaos going on in Pi. And I, he's come full circle. There's a lot of chaos in Mother, and I'm looking forward to yeah. talking about this one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't, well, we had to be goaded into it, as you said. Uh, yeah. I think the the, fir- the first voice dissenting from the crowd was uh, Andrew at the AB Film Review. On Twitter, uh, Andrew was saying, what, I, I don't know what to think or something like that. I don't know what to think about Mother. When are you guys going to be covering it? And we yeah. Like, not. <laughs> we're not doing that. Yeah, and he was like, "Why the fuck not?" <laughs> <laughs> Revise those plans. That was yeah, the funny thing you it. had you had answered basically that uh, it's not part of the it's not in our plans. We're not planning on doing it anyway. And I think there was Colin. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before? Anyway, Colin was yeah, like, "Hey, where's so. your mother fucking episode?" Ha 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 ha. <laughs> which is. Um, which is cool. I mean, it's kind of fun. We we weren't planning on doing it. Actually, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that we we actually pulled a film out of left field. We were actually supposed to do Easy Rider for yeah, no fucking right. reason at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of can't even justify what was going to come out instead. You know, that, that would probably enrage people. Who were like, like, so many people were like, "Yeah, come on, talk about Mother." We were like, "Oh yeah, fuck you, Easy Rider." <laughs> we're doing Easy Rider. <laughs> what are, What are your thoughts on uh, the 1970s seminal classic Easy Rider? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway. We well, we sat down to watch the film. It got the better of us. We started talking mm-hmm. uh, because we pretty much had the same reaction to the movie in which we, I don't know, I, I had, fuck, I laughed, man. Yeah. I don't know. And a lot of, I, I know that like some people like, like I heard, I remember reading a line on Twitter saying, who laughed at this? Yeah, I seen, I seen a little bit of backlash, like. 
those who think too much of themselves said they laughed through mother, which <laughs> I, it's like totally unfair. You know, just uh, because I found it funny doesn't mean I was being a fucking snobbish dickhead, like declaring to the world that this is my sense of humor. It's grander <laughs> than yours. It just it's, it's, it was fucking absurd. It made me laugh. I like that shit. <laughs> yeah, especially the second part when 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 the chaos ramps up. Man, yeah, I could. Man. I think I don't know if I was laughing like heartily, ha ha ha. Um, you know, but I know that there was a guy sitting in front of me because we were only two in my shitty screening of mother. I know that the guy at one point looked behind him to at me like, "What the fuck are you laughing?" <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and it was kind of funny because I just thought I don't know if it was it was a, it wasn't a, a laugh ha 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 this is funny it was more a, like uncomfortable laughter of yeah, like, like Jesus Christ what the fuck exactly what's going yeah. on you know, oh, like, exactly that 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 kind of shit I, I always love I love like surrealism and absurdism uh, something I'll be talking about later uh, that that shit that that uh, you pointed it out before going to see it that uh, some directors were calling it like Kafka esque. And yeah. I was like, oh, holy shit, I love that shit. I, I, I don't mind delving into utter misery and depression and finding some joy in it. I get that. <laughs> I, that appeals to my sensibilities. So and oh. I, went with, uh, I went with some friends and they, uh, they were like, what the fuck is this? And they were laughing too because nobody could track what the hell was going on on screen. <laughs> and then they were trying to like, decipher it. And they were just, it, it was such an overwhelming load of information. It that is, your, yeah. your brain doesn't have anything other than laughter to cope. And, uh, <laughs> and they, they, they were very much like, like that. And when they came out of it, uh, out of the screening with me they were like okay it was funny and, uh, but like what the fuck <laughs> I was like oh well and then I started trying to explain it and then they were like oh well that doesn't that doesn't explain enough to make me like it, it yeah just, exactly Just it just declares exactly why it was so stupid <laughs> 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 Which fine. That, you're, that, I agree with the, with the division around the film. I think it's really funny. I think it's it would be weird if there weren't division. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. If everyone agreed, it would be so fucked yeah, up. Yeah. That, that exactly. That really. Then the message would get across. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or we should. Uh, uh, if we all agree on this. Then why the fuck isn't anything changing? You know. <laughs> Uh, I remember yeah. just as as uh, the guy that was with me at the screening, he was exiting. He just kind of gave me a look and nodded his head in goodbye because I sat through a little bit of the credits so that I could check and see what was going on, who would work <laughs> on it and whatnot. And, and I don't know to this day right now if that look was just like, hey, you crazy fucker. Or yeah. it was like, that was something. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've become this guy's new anecdote. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. I was sitting that was the nod of, thanks for that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as as per usual, this is going to be a spoiler-heavy uh, discussion, as we normally do, because we don't care. Yeah. We like talking these things to death, so it's going to be really, really... This one's... This is... There's a lot of research that went into this one on your part yeah, and on my part. And, and uh, I know that there's going to be reactions like, yeah, yeah, you can read it that way, but it's not the only interpretation. I'm like, yeah, 100% agree with that. Absolutely. That's, the film itself is so wide that you can bring any interpretation, and if you know how to argue your point, you'll make it stick. Okay, and that's the beauty of a film like this is that you can sit in a room, watch it, and I'm pretty sure that if you watch it at different angles in that room, you'll get something different <laughs> from it. <laughs> so true. Uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, like as we sort of preempt some of these more divisive films, we're not trying to make you like it, you know. Nope. We're just explaining what it could be about and, and why, from our perspective, not just why we like it, but why 
this is the kind of film we do like, and it was the kind of film that prompted us to go deeper and figure out some stuff about it that, that you know enhance our experience a little by talking it through. So yeah. we're not we're not like championing mother like fucking everybody should love mother. Yeah, Just no way. Allow yourself to hate it if you don't like it, but like yeah. at least uh, have fun with it. You know, if you want to at least entertain our opinions a little, stick along with the show. I mean, it'll be a good time. You could be like, fuck, I don't care if it's about that. Fuck those guys. So that fair enough. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. I hundred percent agree with that i mean to me it gave me it gave me a reason to go read a bunch of stuff that i should have read a yeah. long time ago and exactly. now i was like oh finally <laughs> i get to kind of delve into this shit and that's kind of interesting but am i going to tell my mom hey ma you have to go see that at one point in the film there's this baby that's crowd surfing and he ends up giving everyone a golden shower and it's a really funny scene my mom's going to be like jason you're sick in the fucking head you know and yeah. i'll be like yeah absolutely but i didn't absolutely. make the film <laughs> or me i didn't make me mother <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Hi, I'm David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. We spend all our time here. I want to make a paradise. She redid all of it. Every last detail. And she breathed life back into every room. Are you happy? Hey, Sheila. I love you. Come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just gonna let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? <laughs> he has pictures of you in his luggage. What were you doing in their luggage? Life into this house. Open 
open the door to new people, new ideas. I'm so sorry. Get out of my house! Get out! You give and you give and you give. It's just never enough. So that was the trailer for Mother, a film directed by Darren Aronofsky and stars Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ed Harris. Harris. Kristen Rigg shows up at one point and she shoots a bunch of people in the head. That was awesome. That's so good. Uh, yeah, there's the, the two um, Gleason brothers, Brian yeah. and Donal, are in there. And uh, I, I, I swear, like, I might be going crazy because I've seen nothing about it. Was Jake Gyllenhaal there for like a second? I don't know. I, I, all right, I'll, I'll point this scene out. You, uh, nitpickers, do this for me when this comes out in DVD. When, when they're they're starting to finally like give people like the rights, you know, on their heads, like the ashes, like that Christian thing. There's a guy who runs up with like black hair and a kind of scraggly look about him. I swear to God, he's Jake Gyllenhaal in like the quickest cameo, and I laughed out loud thinking it was him at that moment because he's like a crazy person, and he's like one of the first crazy persons just after Christian. Uh, shows up. Somebody confirm that for me, please. And that's it. That's I have nothing more on that, but it could be starring Tickle. <laughs> that would be awesome, man. You know, he'd, he'd actually be just reprising his role from Nightcrawler. It's just this crazy uh, dude. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. That's what he's again. in the media. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the film itself is uh, a story. It's a story of creation. Uh, this is the one that uh, Aronofsky wore on his sleeve. This is an allegory for uh, Christianity, the story of creation. And what he said in an interview is that uh, he wanted to shoot it from Mother Nature's perspective because apparently we need a big bath so we can clean ourselves from all the fucking shit that's been going on in the world right now because it's very disappointing to be part of humanity. We're just pricks. Yeah. Okay, so what's obvious about the story itself is that it's the story of creation. It's an allegory. Basically, everything is the, the Old Testament. It goes through Genesis. It goes through uh, the New Testament as well. There's a flood in there. And I mean, that that that's basically the backbone of the story. Yeah. And I mean, allegories are typically used as, as social critiques. You know, they actually comment on how yeah. humanity is at a point in time. It could be political. It could be cultural. It could be, you know, just one of these things where you, you're going to reveal something about humanity and you're going to try to put it in this message a little bit hidden underneath, you know? So yeah. by having this story of creation, I think that there's something underneath that. And that's what I wanted to try to unearth uh, today with whatever we were going for. So uh, we're not necessarily going to be like going in like uh, heavy handed and be like, Oh, you know what? Uh, you know, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, are Adam and Eve. Uh, that was yeah, obvious yeah, to me when I sat down, when you see the, the, his rib, like just like a, like it's stacked. I was like, oh, fuck, look at that. You that's see, actually. <laughs> that's that's what I mean. Like, I, I get that in hindsight. But when it was when I was watching it, that's not what happened. You know, that's, oh, no, that's, okay. these are not the things that clicked to me. Uh, and that's what I kind of worry, I guess. I'm, I'm sort of protective of, of our audience. Maybe some of that stuff isn't super obvious. Uh, like, because right, it wasn't right. obvious to me, so I'm not going to like, you know, oh, you know, the shit that you should have picked up on. That's something that somebody, like, immediately, most sources were pointing out, like, I hope everybody picked up on the Christian references. So I was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, obvious. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Red Letter Media, dude. And I, I think they're, they're a good one to go to. I mean, they don't, they kind of mock the film a lot, which is fine. That's their bit. But, uh... They actually do point out the more obvious 
uh, Christian allegories yeah. straight away. And I think that's probably good uh, viewing if anybody wants to go down that intense route at exactly which ones were there. I think they did a good job summarizing, so you don't need us to do it. But, uh, but that's funny, because like it's it, the way I read the film immediately, it wasn't anything to do with Christianity, except the idea of a creator, uh, which is obviously the overarching kind of problem yeah, of, yeah, the, of the story. What my mind went to was just creation in general, the, the creative process. And I mean, I guess that's a, a, a basic takeaway. I don't think the film is always trying to be as deep as it pretends to be, I guess. Uh, I think a lot of people thought this was a mystery film. And therefore, when they found out who done it by figuring out it was pointing at Christianity or Mother Earth, they figured then that there was no other redeeming value. It's like finding out the murderer. But it's kind of more like Seven. Finding out the murderer isn't enough. You have to keep going <laughs> and figure out figure out what, what it means to the characters or why it's portrayed that way, you know? Uh, and to me, that who done it in this case, can be read a million and one ways. Uh, and that's why it was interesting, because when I was reading this, and I saw a lot of hints at it in the film, I thought it was really obvious that it was about like the, the struggles of being a creative. And <laughs> there's actually dialogue that, that's in there that I, I kept thinking, God, that's this must be it. And when I <laughs> went onto the internet, it's like, that's right, folks, it's Christianity. I was like, oh, God, wow, I could really fucking missed a bullet there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's all right. I mean... It if if you start off by having that as an opinion, it's kind of cool because you necessarily you didn't necessarily have to see that it was he was using allegory for something else. Because even yeah. if it is the story of creation, okay, as an allegory, as you're going to mm-hmm. as you're pointing out right now, it is a creator. And I mean, anybody who writes or makes movies or anything like that has to go through a similar process. And Aronofsky might be drawing attention to the fact that even in his fevered dream that he had for those five <laughs> days when he wrote the script, this is exactly yeah. what he was going through. Just how chaotic and weird it can get in someone's head when they're actually trying to piece shit together. Yeah, exactly. They maybe accidentally parallel with their own life or their own <laughs> the yeah. process by which they make that work, which is so funny. I don't know if he knowingly did this. But I'll just give you my I'll give you a quick rundown of my interpretation of the creative process in this film before we move on to the more deep dive stuff. So just to give you sort of like a, a casual introduction to the film, like something you could take that doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. And you can go, I understand mother now. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> uh, tell your friends. Be cool. Be cool in that playground. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, like, I, I in this take of, of the film, I, I saw Jennifer Lawrence as playing a muse. They actually referred to her as the inspiration in the film. So I, like yeah. that later, that was later on down the line, but that just backed up my like suspicions of it. So then I didn't even bother looking again. Essentially, she's a nugget of ingenuity within any good idea, one that keeps the house from collapsing. And the right. house itself, it's kind of like the framework of the creative mind. It's something yep. within a creator's mind. This house is what. It just means this is this is where all the creative shit happens in your brain, basically. Mm-hmm. And that brain happens to exist within Javier Bardem's character of him. And in the film, we see sort of like an avatar of him. We see basically his input into the creative cycle. We get to see what his thoughts are within the creative framework. But his, his ability to fully leave the house and come back kind of suggests that he's obviously someone, beyond, you know, who has the ability to go to maybe other houses, to go out for walks. This is the, he's access to the whole brain, not just the creative side where he supposedly lived. And the struggle for the muse then is explored when the creative attempting to redeem their work faces a myriad of distractions that usually come when facing everyday life or just attempting to create in the first place. And I've got like an example, Ed Harris's character. Adam. It's pretty obviously the, the, the religious comparison that I totally missed. 
But it's I'll tell you why I missed it. And it's because I thought he represented old professions. The guy is a doctor. I don't know what that has to do with him. But I, I thought about him as an old profession. The, the mind that we are in at this point is having a fancy with alternate routes. As we can see, for this is a story of Javier Bardem, and he's got writer's block, right? So his mind... He lives with this muse, but he's not engaged with the muse. He's in the framework that is the house, but there's no interaction really with them. He's constantly avoiding her gaze. And then when he's with Ed Harris, suddenly he's, he's, he's so captivated in this man's presence. This is because this is the alternate route. This is the out. This is him thinking, this is him uh, teasing the idea that maybe he wants to go back to his old profession. And I read that profession as potentially being a doctor, just like Ed Harris, that this was the old route he had entertained before deciding to be a creator. And the age of Ed Harris in this case, and the fact that he's dying, suggests that there's not long left for Javier Bardem's character to jump back into that route. So maybe he has to jump in on that. I like that. As well as that, we've got Michelle Pfeiffer and her role here is old lusts. And I don't mean that like in a sexual kind of way, although I, I guess you could read it that way. But to me, I, I pictured that more like old creative ideas. Bedfellows you once shared, you know, uh, like uh, an old project you put aside in order to get this muse, you know, the, in order to focus on this new idea that's captured your your imagination. Uh, and so her role in sort of dissuading the muse from house to child is because she's already been through it all. She's had children. She has a life that lives beyond just the framework. And I think Javier Bardem's interest in her and ability to entertain and invite her into the framework is because... There was potential there. And this sort of connection between old lusts and old professions, it's kind of like they're interlinked. Like these are the two biggest distractions when starting to create a project. Then you go to their sons. What's interesting are the sons are debating a will. To me, the will is legacy. This idea of what you can create beyond yourself. And right. it's just one out. And in this case, the will is potentially your legacy as a doctor. This will, this legacy, is where your career could have went. And, and the potential like knock-on effect your life could have taken. They fight over this legacy, this idea that there's something that could be created and something that will be there when you're gone, like Ed Harris will be gone. But one son defends that while the other looks at the financial aspect of it. So there's also the finance aspect of it. What do you gain from making these, these career choices? What do you gain from being creative? You hope to make money. That's kind of a bit. So in Javier Bardem's mind, this guy who takes power over the will is that finance matters more. He wants to be rich and famous. And we see this backed up when all these other people come in giving him fame and fortune. And he is absolutely captivated with it because that's what he wants. Mm -hmm. That's why the fucking finance wins out in that fight to the death. So this battle escalates and we see this chaos in the creative mind during writer's block with all these guys who come in and they're all tangentially related to Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer's characters. These are the thoughts that come in afterwards, the flood and afterwards, the myriad like what about your family what about your friends what about you know the the house you can build for old mama and papa once you get your once you get your writing gig together you know or maybe you'll go back to be a doctor and finally make yourself a man god damn it <laughs> you know these yeah. are the these are the myriad of ideas that come to you once you start doubting the strength of your creative idea in the first place and so that's why you start to see the, sh the the framework of the house deteriorate and that's why you see jennifer lawrence's muse panic and try to protect it and she's like the ward of this house she is trying her best to stop these people from destroying the fabric and the foundation of their relationship right so she essentially pushes them out backed up with golden liquid uh which i don't know uh, to me that was like perseverance bottled i'll, I'll get i'll get into that because i have i have a stick on that a little bit later excellent but to me yeah i guess it's oversimplify what it meant i mean in the story it's kind of just like it's like an inhaler 
It keeps her from passing out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but I mean, if you want to look at the, the the metaphor behind it, it could be perseverance. And also we got to look at the muse's desire. He wants to make a baby. And here's where the plot sort of divides into Javier Bardem settling down and finally getting to work on his creative outlet. Uh, yeah, a little physically, a little straightforward. He actually has <laughs> sex with her. I get that. It, it's it's a simple idea. The uh, And so we get two outsets. There's inspiration that follows from connecting with your muse and that for him to create the poem, this great seminal work that embodies everything that he has shared in the relationship with the muse. The other side of that is the child. And this is their legacy. The legacy of the work you make. This is the follow-up to that idea that you share, that, uh, that creative muse possibility you have to go further and build something on this foundation beyond just what you have with that muse. And it's interesting because uh, a lot of these points kind of come later in the film. Like, you, you don't look at a baby and go, oh yeah, well that's, that's fucking obvious now, you know, but it comes to you after a while because, you know, they, they tear that poor fucking baby apart. Uh... <laughs> And I guess before that, you kind of look at the people that influence his mind after he creates the poem. And that's the fame. That's the, the followers. These are the people that are obsessed with his work. The fans. The wealth. That sort of potential drug abuse kind of outlook on life. Where you get into, you get rich, you get famous, and you start fucking living it up, man. Uh, <laughs> that negative aspect truly affects this egomaniac. And it's kind of more prompting at the allure there is for the creative to buy into their own ego. But also these are like the, the issues that the creative faces post work will they just sell their own work down for fame or do they sort of take themselves away and buckle down for more work to raise that child that will be their legacy with the muse the, the further thought the continuation right. most people sell out that idea early for profit and fame so what happens here is Javier Bardem he gets totally obsessed with this idea that he is the great creator and that these people fucking love his work and love him and that basically he could do no wrong so when it comes to this baby that he fights with Jennifer Lawrence and they they argue over this child uh -huh. the muse is trying to protect it because she wants it to mature she wants the work and the process of, of what happens with that legacy to right. age of itself you know to really become something on its own he can't wait. He gives it to the people. And it's it's amazing. This kind of reminded me of Harper Lee. I actually mentioned it in my review. Right, I uh, remember reading that, yeah. Yeah, because it, it it was one of those sort of tragedies to me, I guess. I, I It's kind of cruel to figure the world as like one like inspiration on another person and shit like that. But I'm not, I'm, don't read too much into it. But my point is, Harper Lee wrote this one book, you know, and it was always this one thing. She was uh, To me, in my head, she always stood out as this person who could just write one thing and settle. Because she wrote the one thing, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those untouchable classics. It's just kind of perfect. You don't need a follow-up to it. And unfortunately, just at the last hurdle, there is a follow-up. One that a lot of people speculate was maybe taken as in an almost abusive way from Harper Lee. I'm not going to speculate why the fuck Ghost Set of Watchmen was released. But this follow-up, it just panned with critics. And that's what I want to get at. That sort of deterioration. Because not only did people then start chewing apart that work, they went back to to kill a mockingbird and started saying you know there was i read articles like was it even that great you know oh fuck. The, the legacy the ruined legacy of harper lee and i you know one side i go oh i get it and then the other side i go what the fuck what the fuck is wrong with people why do they tear the shit apart but that's what people do that's what the public does and i couldn't help but think about that when they tear that baby it's a really apart good observation man yeah they they destroy the new not really fought out the quote-unquote not fought out material you know the unmature material the stuff that harper lee didn't want to release supposedly i kept thinking of that uh this this uh, this thing that she she baked but didn't want to give out to the world 
and sort of just by like legal loopholes they were able to obtain an offer. Uh, I know, and that that sort of semi-reality, I'm not sure how much of that is true, so I'm not going to fucking make allegations here, but that's what I heard. And in my head, I was like, whoa, shit, that's terrible that they managed to do that to her career and so on. Whatever. She's far past caring, I'm sure, at that stage in her life. My point is that then when they deciphered that and they seen how hollow, apparently, Ghost Head of Watchmen was... When they right. go back to, to kill a mockingbird off the bones of that. That, to me, that tied in immediately with how they turn on the mother character. How they then abuse her after they've torn this child apart. They turn heel 180 to her and then they assault her. Yeah. And to me, that's because that's the original work. That's the inspiration. And they start picking apart the heart of the original wow. work. Because I like that, they man. go straight past the, the creative outlets that come after. And they go straight to the heart of the intent. It's something we've seen in real life. And that's why it kind of it, it struck a chord. I guess makes a lot of sense yeah so at, at that point we see then with there nothing more to give the mother character sort of burns down the framework I guess that's pretty straightforward she's sort yeah. of you know you don't deserve this idea kind of idea is that basically once abused that inspiration's gone you'll probably never truly recapture it I guess not in its original form and that sort of leads us to the glass shard and this could be any number of things but I imagine it's the will to create itself mm-hmm. and ultimately that can't be destroyed even if that idea is destroyed the, the muse is destroyed the creative can build over start again create their career again you know uh, and, and potentially fall down the same loopholes again by going <laughs> just in a straight up loop granted I imagine that the loop wasn't one to one but the fact that we see Javier Bartam's character is much older than his muse. Yeah. To me, that suggested that he ages every loop. Uh, we didn't actually get to see like a visual confirmation of that. We got a sort of direct loop. But mm-hmm. I figured that it was kind of in the subtext. You could interpret it either way, that maybe this is a one-to-one cycle, or maybe this is something that he keeps going through until he dies. And I guess in this case, that kind of made sense to me. Uh, and from that, I mean... There's plenty to be gained. That's like a surface reading, I guess. That's what I came out of the cinema going, ha ha ha, I worked it out. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, it shot down immediately once I went on the internet. I was like, yep, that's right, Mother Earth. And like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess like there's a lot to sort of to delve in even there. I mean, it's a warning of the tempering of the creative mind that behind each is an egomaniac with ulterior motives. Perhaps an insight into Aronofsky himself, although, you know, we, we always have to reach at that point. And I, that's up to him to neither confirm nor deny. And, I mean, we can see the struggle to maintain legacy as well. I mean, that's that's always interesting to see how people yeah. perceive legacy. Uh, if you perceive it as a baby torn apart by masses, I mean, that's pretty fucked up. But all the same, I've never quite seen an interpretation of legacy that is exactly that. So, I mean, you already kind of gain things from even just surface readings like that, I think. Uh, And that's why it's fun to delve into films like Mother. And, you know, you don't have to to whip out the books to back it up. I didn't do that for this. I just fucking, that was just all shit that came to my mind. When I read into books, I was was more interested, ultimately, yes, in something else. But to me, that first take is always going to be my first take. Right. And uh, I, I think it's funny to talk about at times because I don't think it doesn't stand up i just think it's you know it might be glancing over a lot of what was in there content wise regarding the christian allegories and stuff just to look at it like oh he makes a poem he's a creative (laughs) (laughs) absolutely but uh, i don't know i had a fun time reading it that way i think other people probably will (laughs) i have to i have to be honest that's a really great read man uh the whole especially the the whole stuff with harper lee i really really like that i think it makes a lot of sense especially when you like they they literally ripped it out of her hands you know just the way that it makes a lot of sense and it's actually it's actually kind of touching when you think about it It, it's it's sad and at the same time you're like wow what the fuck man people don't learn like shit (laughs) exactly it was nice to think about you know it's just like how 
that sucked. Absolutely, yeah. We, we really should be a better fucking species than this. Well, that's the thing. The thing is, is that there is an underlying message throughout the entire film where everything we touch fucking turns to shit. Then yeah, nothing, nothing stays good. Everything we touch, everything humanity touches is going to destroy something. And like you talked about it. I mean, Bill Hicks used to call us a virus with shoes. And I think that's a beautiful <laughs> example of what we are. There's a virus with shoes and it's great. I mean, even the band Tool has a song called Enema, you know, where they talk about Los Angeles, you know, in California that should just be thrown underneath ground because it's the cesspool of fucking crap that lives there and basically and they talk about how mother should just flush it all down you know and i think it's really interesting when you're calling into nature and the whole idea with harper lee i think you're absolutely right every you know uh, I, th- I don't remember who was on twitter the other day i think it was i think it was david hart who had uh, asked a question and it was more with regards to uh, he doesn't understand why uh, people are more comfortable saying what they don't like where uh, as opposed to yeah. saying what they do like and i thought that was a very interesting question because uh, and mm-hmm. i answered basically that uh people are more comfortable being negative than they are actually putting themselves yeah admitting something yeah, about themselves you know and, and i think standing up for it exactly and david shreve or, or was it chris maynard one of the two said that uh there's a vulnerability that comes with showing your appreciation and love for something because then someone can destroy it right away so you create yeah, a weird absolutely. vicious cycle and that you never have as many people on one side trying to defend something. And I think that your example with Harper Lee is one of those things where you're like, you know, we, we consume that second book. We're like, this is terrible. If this is terrible, does that mean that the originals? Yeah, just kinda right. what does, yeah exactly. We go out like, oh, she's like, maybe she was talentless all along. And then exactly. Go, oh, we have to fuck. call into question what the hell that is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so the funny thing is, is while I was sitting there uh, watching the film, I... I um, I noticed all the Christian stuff. I was going through it. I, I was going through the motions and going, all right, cool. Why am I laughing? I have no idea why <laughs> yeah. I'm finding this funny. It's weird. And I didn't, I felt a little bit uncomfortable at first. And after that, I was like, you know what? This is just me. Fine. Ha ha ha. I'm having a fun time. Yeah. And later that night, I, I'd come home. I watched it in a matinee because that's what I do with my afternoon sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I came home and I felt like watching something else just to, kind of put mother at the back of my mind i explained a little bit uh, of the story to leslie and i had a good time at, at the movie theater except for the fucking projecting the projection <laughs> itself and the judgmental nobody <laughs> yeah. and uh i think a month ago i had bought denis villeneuve's enemy yeah right uh-huh. and i just finished watching prisoners and I, I, this is probably inception because it's a build-up to blade runner 2049 i sat down i had just finished prisoners and i was like that's a little bit too long but it's a really good film and so i decided to start watching enemy yeah and as i was watching enemy i uh, sitting on the couch and uh, jake gyllenhaal comes on screen uh, a little bit later in the film and i he says something to his students and that's where it struck me i had this weird epiphany that happened and his character addressed as his students and he starts talking about Hegel and Marx and I was (laughs) kind of taken aback by it because I was like holy fuck this is cool I can get a reading of mother through this quote and the quote that he said basically uh, from the film I think is uh, Hegel said that all uh, the greatest world events happen twice but Karl Marx added the first time it's a tragedy and the second time it's a farce right yeah Mm -hmm. now the actual quote from Marx's the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte uh, because I actually went out and and downloaded a pirated version on PDF of Marx's (laughs) Marx doesn't care anymore. He's dead. Yeah, but, I, you know, I'll, I'll admit to doing the exact same thing with uh, Albert Camus that I'll be talking about later. Sisyphus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was just the first result on Google. I don't feel guilt. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's it. So the quote reads like this, quote, Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time as a tragedy, the second time as a farce. And I thought that was really, really cool. So I ended up looking into that quote because I figured that that's how Mother should be read, as a yeah, farce. And absolutely. I'll explain why. Because I, I, when I started reading the 18th Brumaire, I didn't I didn't read it all. I just decided to kind of skim through the first chapter to see what it was, you know. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never really delved into anything that was, you know, Marx or anything like that. I, I remember reading Jack Zipes because uh, he, he's a Marxist and he does Marxist interpretations of fairy tales and he's a really great scholar and i like his work a lot and so that's kind of where i got a little bit of the end yeah that little connecting dot exactly so what i when i was reading i uh, i'm gonna read this long quote and i thought it made a lot of sense when i started piecing mother together in my mind mark's has to say this about men and their history so the quote reads men make their own history but they do not make it as they please They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionizing themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history history in time-honored disguised and borrowed language and later in the book he concludes that all revolutions perfected this machine instead of smashing it oh god fucking scathing (laughs) (laughs) it is it is it's scathing but at the same time what he's trying to say is that there's nothing new all revolutions all reforms are all built on the revolutions reforms of others and their mistakes So what Mm -hmm. these new revolutionaries are doing is repeating the patterns of the past, which to me ties into Mother's circular narrative, okay? Or the cyclical narrative, if you will. We start with this new woman, and then we just watch the entire house burn down again. We start with the burning of a house, and the end is a burning of a house. So the funny thing is, in a time where everyone seems to be remaking or rebooting or reimagining films, it seems fitting that we finally are getting a retelling and a reinterpretation of the story of creation. But this time as a farce, so, in my opinion, Aronofsky has made the mother of all remakes by actually going back in time and doing that. Absolutely. And so, I think it's really cool. I won't flat out say that the Bible itself, okay, is is an all-out tragedy. I don't want to get into any trouble, and I know that people find that sacred, and that's fine. It's up to you. Uh, but there is a lot of tragedy inside the Bible. Uh, the death of humanity in its entirety in a giant flood. Not to mention this, this dude's crucifixion at some point, right? Yeah, at some dude yeah i mean yeah i mean it's there's, there's some low points <laughs> <laughs> a few low points people like throwing rocks someone in a, individual yeah, no, I, at one i won't point call it a tragedy but it's not you know a comedy yeah. no exactly <laughs> there's the opposite you know uh, yeah. but i mean so aronofsky's version of the creation uh, to me is a remake but as a farce you know and the reason it's a farce is because to me aronofsky has decided to kind of transpose many of the myths parables and stories but literally when you're watching right, the yeah. film you're 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 just kind of like i thought this is you know it's not supposed to be taken as literally as that and when you're watching it and you're like are they eating a fucking baby that's a little <laughs> odd and so to me i think that what aronofsky i don't i mean and listen i have to preface this by saying 
one of my uh, when I was in school uh, studying and all that, one of my professors once told me, whatever the author says about his own work, he's full of shit. I was given similar advice. <laughs> exactly. Throw that opinion out the window. And I think that it's kind of cool that Aronofsky, like I watched a couple of interviews and Aronofsky is like, yeah, it's the story of creation and it's from mother's perspective, mother earth. And, and so I was like, okay, cool. I'm glad that you think that flush information. And then I'm going to go out and see what I... <laughs> And God, so there's probably a counter quote somewhere. It's like, you know, whatever people think about people thinking about the director's <laughs> vision, forget it. Flush it. Exactly. Flush <laughs> it. You know, those people at Atlantic SD, they're full of shit. Don't listen. Yeah, to exactly. <laughs> but I think anyway, from what I got from Mother is that it was made to make the audience realize that, uh, you know, how fucking ridiculous we are. You know, we live in a constant cycle of stupidity that continues to show our inability to change our systems of belief, you know, our yeah. politics, our relationships to nature and all that. And it's just a never ending cycle of shit. And the fact that you're sitting there watching Mother and it starts with the burning of a house and it ends with the burning of a house. You're like, wow, there's nothing in between. Actually, there's three burnings, right? They have to reset somewhere in the middle, right after the Old Testament section and the New Testament section. There is a burning of the house. So Mother Nature, Jennifer Lawrence's character, actually goes through a couple of both, both those testaments. So that means the woman that came before and the woman that come after is going are going to go through similar experiences. Now, Aronofsky has been accused of being a cynical guy, and cynicism is something I enjoy. And I mean. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of what's going on there uh, that is attributed to, to farce. Now, farce itself isn't necessarily meant to be funny, right? Yeah. We're laughing. Mm -hmm. And I, as I said earlier, when I was laughing at the film, it wasn't necessarily a laughter where I was, I was actually really enjoying myself. It came from a part like it was discomfort. What happened was that uh, I, I didn't know the whole structure of farce and I wanted to understand a little bit more about it because yeah. based on that quote, I had to kind of, the quote that I read a little bit earlier, uh, you know, about the Marx saying that the first time is a tragedy and the second time is a farce. I wanted to understand exactly what farce consisted of. And I mean, we'll, we'll have to, like, you're going to be talking about absurdist plays a little bit later. I mean, if you walk mm -hmm. into like a, a Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, you're looking at absurdist theater and all that. And so farce is an extension of the absurd. And what I did is I did a little bit of research to find like if anybody had written on the the, uh, the characteristics of what farce was. What I did is I found a master's thesis by Dario Della Costa and the title of the thesis is The Complexities of Farce. Now, Della Costa cites uh, many different people. I'm going to read some of the quotations in order for us to build a framework around what farce is and then we'll apply it to Mother. Uh, yeah. Leslie Smith is the first one and the definition because the, the two concepts of farce that I want to talk about that are linked actually in Mother are going to be the circular farce and the snowball farce which to me are fantastic names and they do apply yeah, to I mean, Mother right off the bat. Snowball farce I mean, in itself, that's great. <laughs> exactly, it's an accumulation of things until everything just explodes at the end. And so Smith's definition of the circular farce uh, is farces begin in normality but this is pushed farther and farther into absurdity, anarchy, and even nightmare. That applies directly to Mother because when you're watching it, at the end of the film, everything just goes to shit and it becomes a visual fucking nightmare. You know, Absolutely. that the sequence I was talking about earlier at the beginning of, of, uh, of the show where uh, Catherine Vega is just walking down and just blowing people's heads off. You're like, what the fuck is going on? And um, another definition, according to Vera Gottlieb, the snowball farce is, quote, a world in which automated characters demonstrate both impotence and futility in the face of ludicrous odds which have been deliberately stacked up against them by the playwright. So in this case, you have Aronofsky that's basically putting all the odds against Jennifer Lawrence. She has yeah. no way of succeeding and eventually she's going to be pushed into a corner. Now, the snowball farce, based on what I was reading, doesn't begin in a threatening way. And Jessica Milner Davis says that the play or film for us goes from, quote, 
from small beginnings and grows in size and speed to envelop every bystander in its final explosion and disintegration. Now, Dalacosta goes on to explain that the snowball farce ensures that the character quote, finds him or herself in what might appear to be the worst situation imaginable and then outdoes it even further. So the situation can <laughs> quickly become ridiculous and disastrous events become catastrophic, especially when it compared to the calm from the beginning of the film. You know, at the beginning of the movie, when we're watching Mother, it's serene. She wakes up. Well, actually, yeah. the first image is obviously the burning of the face. And then after that, we have the placing of the the, the diamond. But right after that, yeah. it, it's it's basically calm. Yeah, <laughs> she's waking up. She's looking for where he is. And then after that, it just you know escalates from there. Delacosta mm-hmm. again cites Smith, who states that quote madness is made rational by having each event trigger the next while remaining logical in the context of the performance. Which I thought was cool because whenever we're watching Mother, every time Aronofsky turns a corner and something else has happened, the chaos just amps up constantly. But at the same time, you have to get used to that chaos immediately and then once you're used to it he stays in there for about a minute and then after that he switches but he kind of just upends everything every time he gives you just enough time to understand and process the information you get used to it and you're like what what don't go that way it's just becoming worse you know yeah absolutely and it's interesting because i I keep trying to think about why they center jennifer lawrence in in the camera constantly that kind of makes a little sense that means you know following the logical reaction of a character through all this kind of fits that bill that's why we linger with her as we see the chaos are develop and and sort of unravel over and over again we're constantly just from her shoulder or from her back or just around her head you know she's always kind of in frame so that kind of ties in quite neatly with that that's cool I, I, that's a good observation because i was thinking about it because um why you know most of the shots are jennifer close up uh, jennifer lawrence close yeah. up and my conclusion was that uh because he wants to avoid cliches of, of past experiences in film. If you look at films like from the 30s, 40s, everything was somewhat theatrical. So you have a lot of establishing shots, master shots and whatnot. And so if you're trying yeah, to uh-huh. get away uh, and reinterpret some sort of genre, okay, if we you look at the start story... with the stuff you already have. <laughs> exactly. You have to really do exactly the opposite. So it's subversion in a way where... That makes sense too. The story of creation itself seems, when you're reading it, seems like there's so much distance between the reader and the time with which it was he actually goes the opposite he puts it in your face as opposed to keeping (laughs) you at a distance and so i thought that was really clever way of using uh the close-up shots all the events we were talking about in terms of the madness okay so what those events lead to is the backing of characters into a corner and they're panicked, desperate, and perhaps leading them to certain amorality. That was one of the characteristics, again, of farce. The result is that in their desperation, the characters will do anything to escape that situation, which plays heavily into when she finds that lighter at the end and she's like, fuck you, I am going to blow this all to hell. (laughs) And so basically that's what people do when they're backed up into a corner. They become somewhat irrational. Now, the fun thing is, is that once you, like we were pointing out, the camera being so close to Jennifer Lawrence the entire time, obviously we are going to be on her side. I mean, he's basically enforcing that throughout the entire yeah. time. This is the person you follow. This is the person you should, whose side you're supposed yeah. to be on. Whose reactions are important. <laughs> exactly. And so by the time she's there, to me, it felt kind of like a, whew, it's about fucking time someone did I something. I know, absolutely. It's like, you should have burnt this down like a half an hour ago, man. Exactly. What are you like, waiting for? Like, if I were for? in your shoes, I would have been out of here the moment fucking Kristen Wiig pulled a gun. <laughs> Run downstairs and like, boom! You know, and so, you know, if you transpose all the stuff onto the, the film, you have Lawrence 
who has her house invaded by a bunch of people. The place is evacuated by the so-called flood. And then the story starts over again and the chaos gets just so much worse. The chaos just is amped up to the point where you're like, okay, I can't really take any more of this. Uh, And then she gives birth. The guy steals the baby. The people eat the baby and mother in her desperation tortures the entire place down. And so... Pretty conventional snowballing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It it, it basically is a huge snowball effect. Uh, A couple of other elements of farce that I thought were interesting uh, interesting when I kind of started picking it apart was uh, the use of objects in a subversive manner. Uh, the use of yeah. objects apparently is really important in farce. And Albert Burmel says, and I quote again, the difference between a gun in melodrama and in farce is that while in melodrama, the characters must be aware of what it is in farce, they have to beware of what it may become. So mm-hmm. I have a series of examples of what, what I, what he means by that. For example, to me, um, in Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves, the sheriff says he's going to carve Robin's heart out with a spoon. And then his brother doesn't really understand why the sheriff would you wouldn't use a knife or a sword. And the sheriff responds <laughs> yeah, right. that it would hurt more with the spoon. So now you have the image of a spoon that we can, can be used as a weapon of torture not just a, just a little mini shovel that you're going to use to eat soup uh, yeah, the same right. thing happens in the Bourne movies when Matt Damon beats the shit out of some guy using a magazine with a newspaper yeah <laughs> yeah you know that's something that you would consider harmless you use it as a fly swatter occasionally but you don't use it to stab a guy in the throat you know and so what I thought was really cool is that in Mother the young brother murders the older brother with the use of a doorknob you know and that's I mean right. there's uh-huh. a couple of places just before that happens where Aronofsky uses these lingering shots to emphasize that the like that there's a doorknob there early on we'll get to why the doorknob is gold after but he's just you know we're looking at it and we're like oh, why are you showing me the fucking doorknob because it doesn't contain any threatening attributes right <laughs> yeah absolutely. and so until it becomes a weapon you're like what yeah your the mind's fuck? racing like what the fuck are they gonna do with this doorknob and <laughs> exactly. then, you know it, 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 i'd be impressed that somebody was looking at that and that shot and went oh somebody's gonna kill somebody with that <laughs> Exactly. It doesn't matter why. Does she want to leave? Does she want to go outside? That I can understand as a rationale where you're like, okay, yeah, the doorknob yeah. leads us that's, to, that's, to that. that's where your mind goes. Yeah, exactly. But the doorknob <laughs> never leads to murder. <laughs> that's the one thing. <laughs> Um, I think we could also make a case for the the diamond or what you called the glass earlier as as being one of those objects. Yeah, right. You know, it seems like an heirloom at first. He puts it back and everything seems like we all have these little collector's items of ours. And I think that once you see the element just literally being taken out of mother's chest, to me, that's a really violent image. She's just reaching into (laughs) someone and pulling something out. You wouldn't expect it to be made out of glass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, I guess, I don't know, when you see it shatter at the start of the film, I don't think anybody at that point was thinking, that came from her. (laughs) No, no, definitely not. There's no fucking way. Yeah, it's just upending. Just like that heirloom. Yeah, he treasured that. How's that? How's he going to get that back? Nobody was going, oh, he'll pull it from her chest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know where this is going. (laughs) Another element of farce is performance. Okay, characters should do their best not to be funny and play the part as serious as they can so as to show conviction for whatever's going on. And that makes sense. I mean, no one, (laughs) we barely see anybody smile or laugh, you know. There's not not an actual joke cracked at any point. (laughs) I I think so, anyway. Another, the last one I think that I have in terms of um, the elements of farce, another element is the numerous entrances and exits from all characters as well as being chased. So all the characters and mothers go in and out of rooms and in and out of the house 
very very often throughout the entire thing and it seems much worse because uh we're seeing the mother the the, the action from mother's point of view right she's just Mm -hmm. constantly turning her head and real what the hell why is that person there where did they come from you know there's even lapses in time at one point you know when he writes his his last draft and all that so also at the end mother's chased downstairs where she decides to press that reset button and blows everything to hell which is which is a it's a comforting moment which is not supposed to be the case when you're like okay the (laughs) the best solution is to just blow this all up you know and so the, the way I see the film is, uh, I, I won't say that Aaron, Aronofsky, I won't put words in his mouth, but to me, <laughs> Aronofsky's saying, <laughs> I, I think that by using this idea of story of creation as a farce, I think that he's saying, look at how stupid you are. You know, you refuse to change and haven't realized yet that you are your own undoing, you know? And I also think that it points to the fact that we should stop believing in fairy tales. Uh, I'll get into fairy tales a little bit later because there are a lot of things inside the Bible that point to myth, parables and all that. But there's a lot of the structure of fairy tales that is going to be based on scripture. But we won't really know if they were actually based on scripture or if it's vice versa or they're using the same types of patterns and all that. Because this all comes down Mm -hmm. from moral tradition anyway. And one dude decided one time, it was like, hey, maybe we should print all this shit and make a lot of money off of it and that's what they did it's it's word for word you know this is all real whole oh yeah exactly (laughs) and so i think that you know obviously it could be a commentary on on how how disappointing humanity is uh and and where we are today and i mean the fact that we keep repeating the same patterns and the fact that we're so boringly predictable i mean look it it could also be seen as like the, the the his commentary in the film industry the fact that he's making the mother of all remakes is like fuck you i'll make my own remake and I'm going to remake the story of creation by creating it anew with my fingers in the air and I have a baby pissing all over everybody a little bit later <laughs> in the film. And so I think that if we keep remaking the same things, it actually points to this, this like you said, like, you know, it's, it, it's essentially a writer's block. Right. We seem to be uh suffering from that right now. There's a lot of good movies coming out, but there is what we could label a huge writer's block. You know, they're they're like, oh, well, well, this made money. Maybe we should try that again. And you're like, well, yeah, but you've already made the money on that. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, You already made Noah. (laughs) 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 I think maybe, you know, that's funny. If you wanted to like specifically go into Aronofsky on that, you could say Noah is the is the tragedy and uh, mother is the farce. That could be it, because Noah is the the father of humanity, if you will. He's the guy that survived and had to recreate earth you know according to what god wanted him to do so i mean there is a father mother imagery there as well so there is there there's probably a parallel that you could uh, draw for that that's for the aronofsky fans you guys you go nuts (laughs) (laughs) anyway i want to hear what you had to say about sisyphus and absurdism uh and i'll get to the fairy tale stuff after that i mean yeah because to to be exactly as absurd as absurdism can be it's also meaningless because it's almost the exact same outcome as the farce <laughs> so you know, it's it, it, this kind of might feel like a little bit repetitive because I'm all I'm going to do is explain once again how shit we are, but I will explain it with different words. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, another, it was interesting because when I, I was, they were talking about the religious information within the film. Right. I was thinking about the other parts of it beyond that. Then, because although yes, Aronofsky himself states it's sort of it's your planet Earth story against God and so on. And I was thinking, but why this film, you know? Why is it a horror art house mashup, you know? Why is why the goofy cha-ching noises? Why the exclamation in the title? Oh, yeah. The sheer scale of the violence. That explains the content, but not the form as such, you know? Right, so, right, right. 
I found it really strange why it was so melodramatic. And then ultimately I did find that there, there was a lot in the film that was inherently absurd. And it, also what hurt about it was how heartbreakingly meaningless it was. How heartbreakingly meaningless the cycle was. Because we just follow this character. We follow the cycle again. It's just one continual loop of misery and violence. <laughs> And if this is the life of the characters, it's a terrible one. Yeah. And it immediately prompts you to ask, what's the point? And that's where I get people's frustration. Like, why did I fucking suffer this? You know, yeah. why did I, why did I have to watch mother? Why did I have to suffer? These guys have as bad as it is. <laughs> yeah. There's no end to this. Why? I'm just going to go yeah, home exactly. and have that mulling I'm... over my head constantly now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was funny because it made me think of the absurd and, and it actually got me off my ass and started reading something about the absurd nice. instead of assuming shit about the absurd right which is great because i i always want to be prompted into reading shit and, and even if you tied it to my other reading i mean you could you could f force the question why bother to be a creative if it's, if it's such a miserable cycle i mean there's that you know it doesn't have to be the christian thing but uh, let's let's take the christian side of it for right. now yeah, yeah if this is the eternal struggle you have to wonder why we even try and that nihilistic outlook is exactly what ties it to albert camus the myth of sisyphus because that's not to go too deep into it, it's a fun essay. It's not something that I, I, I there was there were parts of it that I I was like it's it's pulling a lot of existential philosophers and I've not read them so I can't gain much from this. Okay, but there were part that I made the best of it I could. The connecting dot here is as Camus states, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem and that is suicide. If everything is meaningless, right. why don't we kill ourselves? <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> That, that's that I, I right that to me that's hilarious <laughs> and, and that's that, immediately that's my shit i love oh, it was that the most, like, why <laughs> most defeatist fucking thing ever why don't you just kill yourself but it's great that's, it's great it's a good thought that's the truth like because he's not a defeatist right. uh that that's why he wrote this essay because he truly believes that there is a reason to live okay. even if the reason is absurd and I'll get into that. Cool. But the central question is why? You know, why like before like before we even delve into other philosophical outlooks, before we start reading this as a Christian film, we have to first reason why watch it at all. Why like it's Jesus so Christ. miserable, you know? Oh, why don't we just kill ourselves instead exactly. of finding meaning? <laughs> That's interesting. And it and it ties into that like that, that allegory, I guess. When the when the rock rolls down, why does Sisyphus start to roll it up again when he knows it's gonna roll down again, you know? That's the central conceit here. Even if, and that causes him misery, why does he do it? The trick is we invent meaning. Uh, yep. something that's Stops us from killing ourselves. Which is true, I guess. It is, and it's 100% accurate, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, meaning in life is pretty much all that stands between us and death, as to live without meaning, and for our brain to realize it, is to stop living. But the issue is, life is inherently meaningless insofar as we know it, so we invent a meaning for which to keep us alive. Part of the human condition is to continually strive for meanings to live and one of which, and one that's relevant to Mother at least, is God. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Living is absurd, as is our invented meaning, in this case God. It's an absurdity. Something we can suggest doesn't actually exist, but one that we can convince ourselves is real in order to find meaning in life. Now, that's that maybe sounds like it's just my, you know, state of mind. That's also where the the book itself goes, okay? So I'm not just right. coming at this like a hard atheist look on this. This is just this is also in the book. <laughs> what the film shows us then, with its allusions to Christianity, its depiction of a semi-benevolent creator and cycle 
in which all we do is try to please him is our relationship to God himself. One that is basically a relentless shit show from start to finish. <laughs> Ultimately ending in our meaningless death in which we give him everything and thereafter the cycle starts again and he takes everything from us again and again. <laughs> nice. And we see our desire to be with God played out like us wanting him to fuck us, which is great. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the house being the church we build and maintain for him. Right. The heart of which is our faith in him, which is challenged relentlessly by the world that invades our life. The horrors of war, the media, the yep. thieves and criminals, the impoverished, the sick. Until we die a shaken, shriveled mess and kill ourselves in the end. <laughs> Meanwhile, God, dopey smile on his face, picks up what's left of in our ashes and starts again unscathed. <laughs> it's miserable. It's absurd. Why? Right. Why did Aronofsky make this film? Why is it both reckless and sad and yet occasionally comedic and how over the top it is? Well, he does so because he wants us to witness the cycle in all its terror. Okay. To prompt us to find a new absurdity. And it's tying in there, why is it a farce? You Absolutely, know? yeah. Because man. we need to see it, you know? We need to see how shitty the cycle is to know to break it, you know? And right. that's, you have to see it in new light, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Life is absurd and terrible. That much is made clear by the people who invade the house. But we still need a reason to go on to the end, right? Why make that reason this guy who takes everything from us and ignores so much else, even if we are his most precious? Find a new reason to live, is essentially what Aronofsky is saying. Uh, and there's even some suggestions in the film, I, I think. Maybe I'm jumping at things, but I think that the film even suggests a couple of ideas. What could be our new conceit? <laughs> what could be our new absurd reason to live? Okay. It doesn't have to be God. And a simple one might be the poem. While this is obviously an allusion to the to the Bible, or yeah, the it's a new testament, something like, basically. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, we get to see what makes God Himself happy, and it's a poem. Why not take that? Double down on art until we find our solution to meaninglessness. Right. Find meaning in the creation business, just like God, because mm -hmm. He seems pretty happy. Let's steal His gig. <laughs> Better yet, how about humanity? Humanity also makes God happy distractions and violence he sees relatively nothing of or acts like it isn't happening but he loves the people at their attention why not find that meaning in each other build upon humanity and make a better world of it right until the point where you know we know that there is a meaning in this inherently meaningless universe uh you know and uh, that might just be an end product of doubling down on helping each other but i mean it's it's a better starting point than getting fucked over each time absolutely <laughs> So, like, through these, we can see an omission, perhaps, that Aronofsky doesn't entirely know what the solution here probably is. But he still wants us to see a toxic relationship right. between Mother Earth and God, as he puts it. And he wants us to take away that this relationship is never-ending. But something makes God happy, why not start there? And to relay Camus, who at this point is relaying existentialist philosopher Shestov, I think is, is how you pronounce that. The only true solution, he said, is precisely where human judgment sees no solution. Otherwise, what need would we have of God? We turn towards God only to obtain the impossible. And for the possible, men suffice. If there is a Shastovian philosophy, I can say that it is altogether summed up in this way. For when, at the conclusion of his passionate analysis, Shastov discovers the fundamental absurdity of all existence, he does not say, this is absurd, but rather, this is God. We must rely on him even if... He does not correspond to any of our rational categories. Wow. So the rational mind admits a longing for the irrational illusion of meaning and can accept that to some degree. This must be found in something like God. Aronofsky, yeah. with a wider lens on God's effect on the world, suggests 
Move on. Find wow. a new absurdity. Okay. Because this one is pretty humiliating and violent and punishing. Let's not do this. That's great, man. I love that. And I, I you, you came to the same conclusion as I did, you know, when exactly I was talking the about same. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, Marx was saying that all of these revolutions only perfected the machine. Christianity or mm-hmm. Catholicism or religion in and of itself it is one of those things that's self-perpetuating. It just continues to evolve, you know, and we were talking about it with, with regards to upstream color, you know, that tie between nature and capitalism now, you know, I think that it kind of yeah. goes into that where everything we've done so far, we've tried to destroy it. But we've only made it stronger. And I think there was someone who says that sometimes breaking our bones actually makes them stronger and it le- more more impervious to actually breaking again. And you're like, Jesus Christ, even if our body reacts that way, it's kind of interesting when you think of how Marx actually pointed that out. He's like, no, no matter what kind of revolution you guys are doing, you're only building on what the past has done. You're not inventing <laughs> exactly. anything new. You're just recreating the same fucking thing. You're going to end up as the old thing. And there's going to be something new that'll become the old thing. And there's going to be something new that'll become the old <laughs> thing again. All you're doing is How doing absurd. the same fucking thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's depressing. You know, and it kind of pointed out, I, I mean, I, I know Einstein is credited as saying this, but I don't know if he is or not. Yeah, uh, I mean, Twitter accredits a lot of things to Einstein that he might uh, not have said. <laughs> didn't he say that madness is uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? That's 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 what it is. It's insanity. Essentially, what yeah, we've absolutely. witnessed through Mother is insanity. And the cycle just c- keeps going. It's the same fucking thing over again. And I love that. I love that you brought it out uh, in, in uh, Sisyphus and Camus because... Brilliant, man. That's a great essay. And I want to continue just quickly to build on what I talked about just what I, as I was ending my shtick about fairy tale imagery and the fact that yeah. a lot of fairy tale imagery is rooted in symbolism. And there is a bunch of stuff that's taken also from scripture, but also like it is perpetuated throughout a lot of the old stuff. And I'm not talking about yeah, fairy yeah. tales, Disney style. I'm talking about Grimm's Grimm's and yeah, Hans yeah. Christian Andersen and oral exactly, all them. Yeah. Absolutely. And so a lot of the stuff that's going on in mother kind of caters a little bit to what fairy tale imagery is. And I think that what Aronofsky is doing is trying to point out the fact that, you know, your creation myth, that's also a fairy tale. And I think that, you know, when mother wakes up in the morning, she's wearing a, a white dress, you know, white is the symbol of purity and what happens throughout the movie is her attire actually changes to different shades as she's going throughout. And yeah, right. once the flood happens, you know, the, those pipe bursts after those idiots are on the counter just jumping up and down. Who who does that? You know, that's the funny thing when I was sitting there. Who, who does that? And when you think about it, it's like... Man does that. <laughs> that's it. So when we see them jumping up and down uh, after that, she's outside with, with Javier Bardem again. And she's wearing another white dress. I thought that was a cool nod. You know, she's she's pure. But when we see him for the first time, did you notice what he was wearing? Uh, was it like a brown shirt? No, nah, he's wearing this kind of uh, a brown shirt over a blue collared shirt, which I thought <laughs> was funny because... You know, he, God's this blue-collared guy. He's just coming yeah, home from he's, work. He's so a he's working crea- day man. <laughs> exactly. He's just a working day. I thought that was a really fun nod to just... I was oh, looking wow. at it. I was like, fuck you, Aronofsky. Like, God's this blue-collar guy. That's amazing. I thought that um, the off-shade colors that she was wearing, Mother actually wears gray at one point, and she's wearing a, a sweater, and she's wearing jeans. Just shows, like, the more vulnerable she becomes, the more protection she wears. Right, right? yeah. And so I thought that was kind of cool. The lemon is another thing that I picked up on. The, the fact that they're drinking lemonade. Lemonade, lemons are a symbol of fidelity. Wow. Uh, but also, 
In Christian myth, they're a symbol of uh, fidelity. But I think there was a song from Mary May and Paul or whatever it's called anyway, called The Lemon Tree, in which they talk about how uh, the lemon may be really interesting to look at, but it's also one of the fruits that you can't eat from. And they kind of compare love to that. It's not something that you can rely on in love. Ah, So by the fact that she's actually giving her the lemonade, you know, and and it's spiked with alcohol. It's one of those things where you're like, (laughs) if you believe in love, you know, it's basically love drunk, but it's something that wears off after time, like a certain amount of drunkenness. Yeah. So that was really cool. Um, I think that, uh, I'll get into the golden elements of fairy tales because golden elements, especially in the Grimm's fairy tales, and um, the one that I picked up on that I wanted to use for this as an example was a Grimm fairy tale. I don't remember what the date is, but it's called The White Snake. And uh, The White Snake, uh, you have this man that has to complete three tasks in order to gain a girl's love. And one of the tasks is actually to fetch a golden apple from the tree of life, eat it with her so that they can consummate their love. Fuck. Is exactly what to do, basically. Yeah, Here right, yeah. <laughs> now, golden fairy tales is a representation of the sun, a symbol uh, of something that will give you nourishment. Uh, it's also a symbol of wish fulfillment. And it's also a symbol of heaven. If you look at all the halos of all the saints that are in these stained glass windows in a church, all of them are dead. They're all in heaven, but they all have these halos of gold. Even just look at the angels that you have at the top of your tree in Christmas. They're yeah. all gold, all right? So you have this very big symbolic imagery that gold is going to be important mother's hair is gold and she looks like an angel and when we see her for the first time as i said earlier she's bathed in sunlight right she's at sunrise and this is where she's going to be a kind of her her most normal and then throughout the day you'll have that cycle because even at the end of the film it ends in darkness the paint that she uses on the wall at first she starts scraping and it's silver but then after that she decides to look at a different color and it's gold now because the house itself is supposed to be the symbolic image of heaven and because heaven is attributed to gold that That's when she starts actually painting the wall gold. So she's making that heaven for God inside the house using gold. Basically, what she's trying to do is give God all of the sunlight she can give him, all the nourishment she can give him in order for him to be able to create. Bigger churches, bigger, crazier, brighter, best churches. (laughs) Exactly. The lighting is gold as well throughout the entire movie. When she's walking throughout the house, there's a lot of gold going on. Uh, The light Mm -hmm. fixtures, the light fixtures themselves on the walls, the doorknobs. Uh, also are gold and we were talking about the drink earlier the elixir is gold as well and to me she uses that in order to replenish some of her lost energy like uh superman <laughs> that that golden myth <laughs> exactly the golden myth he uses the sunlight in order to kind of just regain his strength that's exactly what she's doing essentially what she's doing is drinking liquid sun if you will and so all these golden elements no no but i mean that's it it's, it's all nourishment right absolutely and The fun thing is that there's a subversion in that at the end. And this is just me bending the rules because I want to offend a couple of people. The only (laughs) thing golden in the movie is the golden shower from the baby at the end, which is the opposite of nourishment. (laughs) It's an evacuation of what can't be absorbed by the body. And to me, that's one of the most demented scenes of the film. But fuck, did I ever laugh when I saw that? Man, it's like that, it's just a golden shower, you know. It's just, just I, yeah. I was fucking guffawing. Some parts elicited like gentle laughs throughout that part. Yeah. I was like, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, just going back to the elixir uh, of gold, she drinks it three times in the film. And that's another fairy tale motif Mm. that evokes, again, the Holy Trinity, you know, God, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it also comes 
to uh, to uh, when we like the three act structure, you'll have the beginning, the middle, and an end of a story. The genie that grants three wishes, Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Three is this all pervading thing. You know, you know, and it, I think it does come from the Holy Trinity, but it has to come from something else before that. And I mean, we're, I'm going to be talking about Mesopotamian and gods a little bit early, later. Uh, not long, not long, but I just you know <laughs> to show that the story of creation actually comes from different places. And I want to explain how. Aronofsky uses his camera. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about in terms of fairy tale imagery is cannibalism. Cannibalism is prevalent in all old fairy tales. Of course. You know, if you look at Hansel and Gretel, the old lady in the woods is revealed to be eating the kids. She's fattening out Hansel in order to eat him. Absolutely. Uh, in Snow White, the queen eats the hearts, the liver, and the lungs of the young girls in order to consume their beauty. You'll have Sleeping Beauty. There's an evil mother-in-law uh, that has a taste for human flesh, which is <laughs> They're just, and they're just another... throwing that in there now. They're like, oh, yeah, everybody exactly. else like, is well, uh, everybody else is a cannibal. Might as well make her a cannibal. Exactly. One of the one of the one of the funniest ones is uh, called the juniper tree, and there's an evil mother who cooks her young boy. I think she's a stepmother, and then she feeds him in a stew to his father and then there's these little birds that come and say don't do that you know and it's like the little right. boy's spirit that's actually telling the father that she's an <laughs> evil fuck and she murder him uh, he should murder her sorry i mean these are all based on pagan rituals right cannibalism was part of these things and so is consuming the body of christ it's a form of cannibalism yeah. even if they did change it to bread i'm sorry if i'm offending you guys but he li- this is my body this is my blood you are drinking blood and eating someone's body <laughs> And so I think that by showing this eating of the baby, literally, Aronofsky is pointing to the complete nonsense and madness that has consumed humanity and that we think it's normal. We go to church and we're like, this is his body. All right, cool. Give it yeah, to me. I'm gonna... Yeah, it's quietly upsetting in your head the first time you hear about it. Then you just indoctrinated. It's yeah. terrifying. <laughs> exactly. At one point, it just becomes normal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to eat this, like, yeah, you know, the body. Eat this. Then fucking yeah, that's his body. I'm having mouth. a body now. <laughs> exactly. It's one of his fingernails. Um, uh, one of the things that I thought was really cool about it was the house. We had agreed that it was oct- fucking octagonal, wasn't it? Yeah, it's an octagon. And we were talking about it just offline, like that, that an octagon, if we were looking at, uh, you were talking about tarot, but I was going in terms of fairy tale imagery. I was looking at uh, yeah. also how it works in, in, um, in terms of, uh, just numerology. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's a symbol of regeneration, totality, infinity. If you uh, switch it sideways, the number sideways. eight again is that symbol of infinity. There's also a symbol of rebirth and also a symbol of transition which is kind of interesting because if that house is kind of what we'll call a circular house because it's clearly not a square yeah you know <laughs> we have that symbol inside the house that's actually one of those things uh, in the shape of the house if you will and that regeneration is also shown just as a, a fleeting image when mother discovers downstairs in the basement when it's actually drenched in blood and she goes through the wall there's a little frog that hops there and in myth and in fairy tales, the frog is usually a symbol of healing and cleansing and also of regeneration. So when Mother sees that frog, I mean, Aronofsky's foreshadowing where the hell, where we're going to end up in the film most likely yeah, a little absolutely. bit later. <laughs> you know, the, the, the oil tank, uh, the basement set ablaze and all that. That's how the regeneration is going to start. And so that's just a couple of the elements of fairy tales that are in there. There's a lot more. I didn't want to start detailing because it could have just gone on forever. But if he's pulling on all these strings at the at the same time, it's kind of interesting. No. No, absolutely. He was able to put all that in the film. I mean, I guess that's why people might hesitate a little when they give him credit. Maybe he just whammed everything in there and just hope it stuck. You know, like the, the when it comes to the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the oct- octagonal house. You're probably not going, oh yeah, he's a genius. 
because he thought of that. He's probably like, he had one idea. And it was probably, he just liked the house. <laughs> you know? But it just happened. Eight sides. Whoa. We can, we can read into piles of shit, you know, and tie it in together. But there's probably, you know, you look into an ancient, ancient text. Eight is the number of loving God. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, or, yeah. eight is the number of the devil. And the devil's nowhere to be seen in this. And then you're going, oh, well, okay. You know? The point being, there's probably enough room for counter-arguments within these arguments. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah That's definitely. what's fun about it. And that's why, you know, we're not saying, you should fucking love this film because it's genius. We're just like, oh, there's a lot of great stuff in here that we found interesting. Yeah, uh, that does It doesn't have to serve the film better. We just enjoyed it. And then read up on it later and then further enjoyed that. It doesn't have to be like, oh, fuck. Now, I'm like, now the film's even more amazing. <laughs> it's like Uh, whatever (laughs) one of the last things i picked up on that i want to talk about is just a just one of the one of the little instances of visual language i wanted to go back to watch the movie a second time so i could actually pick up on more of this stuff but i decided not to like i explained a little bit before i thought that aronofsky had shot certain scenes in a very very specific way the one that i want to talk about is how he wanted to show how mother and father are separated by children i thought that's (laughs) it because in the story of creation that's exactly what happens right yeah, absolutely. You have this division from the sky and the earth and and the child is what basically is, lives in the middle. And I thought it was kind of cool because if you look at like old, like I said, like old Mesopotamian creation myths, you'll have like Anu, who is this great father in the sky. And then he'll have uh, his wife, the great mother earth called Ki. And she'll, he'll also have a wife called Antu in, in, in the sky as well. But mm-hmm. when the earth mother gives birth, uh, when Ki gives birth uh, to Anu's son, he's called Enlil. And he's the guy who basically cuts the earth uh, from the sky. And that's what creates those two divisions. Now, it's the same thing in the Bible. You'll have God, which is the great God in the sky. And then you'll have Mary, who's the great mother on earth, right? And then you'll have Jesus, who's going to be that bridge between heaven and earth. I thought it was really, really cool because what Aronofsky does in the film to show that there's going to be a growing separation between him and mother is when uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Ed Harris are sitting at the table for breakfast you know, there's a foreshadowing with the regards to him coughing, burning of the cigarette, her burning the food as well. So we have this these little apocalypse or, or ap- apocalyptic imageries that are showing up where there's going to be fire, mm-hmm. where she's slowly losing control and uh, even Michelle Pfeiffer burns her hand. Anyway, the way that Aronofsky shoots that sequence, I thought was great because he shoots Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer using two shots. But then after that, it's going to be only shot reverse shot for Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. They're never shown in the same frame together. Except for the end of the scene, when he gives her a kiss, that's okay, they're going to be shown together. But whenever they're having the conversation with those two people, man and woman, man and woman are essentially those children that create the divide to begin with because he wants them to stay and she wants them to leave. And so I thought that it was really clever of Aronofsky to kind of really show that division between those two things by actually incorporating it into his into the official language. language yeah absolutely and it comes again in the new testament side of things at the end of the film where there's a literal face-off between him and mother when she's holding the young baby you'll have an establishing shot that's going to be from the door's perspective so we're, we're like there's the people outside waiting and we're waiting also yeah, to see uh-huh. what the hell's going to be happening from that scene but then after that he moves into a shot reverse shot where you have javier bardem just staring down mother and mother trying to stay awake the entire time time after having given birth to her child and again there's that division mother is holding the child and he's literally between javier bardem and jennifer lawrence so you have that creation there that division between mother and father that children will normally create any 
myth story that you guys are creation myth yeah absolutely and the last thing that i wanted to point out is the shape of the house not necessarily in terms of a circle but how it's shaped the shape of the house you'll have a main floor that is larger than the top floor and it gives it the appearance of a ziggurat and the ziggurats basically if you look at like old mesopotamian pyramids you know that's exactly why churches are built the way they are it's basically so that they can actually tie heaven and earth you know the higher you can build your damn church the closer (laughs) to god you're going to be essentially and i love that the house is kind of shaped like that as well where it looks like a pyramid if you will and it's basically where you're going to try to reach heaven but you can't quite make it and so i think that it's really cool uh, that there's these little hints in there about fairy tales and the stories of creation and how he uses it in terms of visual language and imagery. He did a great job. I mean, you can't fault him. The directing in this fucking movie is goddamn awesome. That chaos Absolutely. is just brilliant. I know. I it's it like grabs you. You know, you really there's a lot going on, but you still manage to keep track of it all, and it's just yeah. fucking thrilling. Actually, just to be in it and going, what the fuck is going on? Even if it is disorienting. Uh, even when I was with, you know, my friends and they were watching it, they were glued, their eyes glued to the screen. They just, you know, they, they didn't understand what the hell was going on, but that's kind of the point. And that was what was yeah. really fun about it. And it's just, it shows that maybe we're not going to be able to cover that there is to be gained from this film. And that's oh, no. fun. That's great. That's the kind of film that you want to see more of. Films that just have so much going on that you can dip in here and there and go, you know what I noticed? There's a fucking golden doorknob actually falls to the ground, rolls three times, and that's actually a, a, a <laughs> sacred number, you know, in 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 Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that kind of shit. That's super fun. I, and that's also how it's going to appear to some people. That's like you're you're talking fucking gibberish, a nonsense language. You're throwing facts, but it doesn't improve the film. Fine. But there is there's good stuff here, and I think when Red Letter Media covered it, well, obviously it's their comedic stick. They also oversimplified from Aronofsky's perspective what he was trying to get at. Right. The the two of them sort of joked about his background, the way he carries himself, and that basically he he's chancing his arm, and maybe maybe that's true, and I think it's funny to think of him that way. But uh, you know, at the same time, I don't think it's fair to take that interpretation of the guy who made it and then look at the work that's so full of all this rich, fun interpretation even if it's basic and enjoy that for what it is you know and that's why it's not why i enjoyed the film i enjoyed the film because it was put together well and it was told well but i yeah i enjoyed the film on further reflection and i appreciate the film more because it's filled with crap like this that's just like how do you how does your mind even go there why do you do this you know i just it's kind of like awe just like where did your mind get to when you thought you know what they're going to rip that baby apart. That's cruel and horrible. And yeah. it makes sense in the world that you're building. And that's that's impressive because I would never tell that story, you know? <laughs> no, that's another, that's a really good point. How the fuck do you come up with this? You know, yeah. like being like that, that, there's a lot of stuff going on in that film. I mean, and if that is really what happened, you know, over the course of five days where Aronofsky was just living on a, on a bender having a goddamn nightmare and he decided to pump out this script yeah. there's a lot on his mind man because Definitely. to me like when i when i was watching it the conclusion you know to me i was like well, holy shit now god is ridiculous humanity is worse because they choose to believe him <laughs> you know and i mean it's and they choose to believe in him because of the apparent spiritual guidance that you were talking about because we yeah. have to have meaning yeah absolutely. rather than just get the physical nutrition we take for granted from mother we're like, you don't need to have meaning. You just need to survive. Absolutely. And it's a bit weird because at the same time, it points out to what you were talking about in terms of nihilism. And this isn't the first movie that you could actually pick apart as something 
horribly nihilistic. Uh-huh. In 2017, I mean, we were talking about, um, look at the speech in a ghost story from that guy at the yeah. end. You know, it's everything is meaningless. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going <laughs> to die. It's weird. I mean, and look at the deaths. We were, we were, uh, Jordan Vogt Roberts was talking about how like Kong Skull Island, there is a, a, a nihilistic yeah, uh, interpretation yeah. of it there because there's no humanity isn't precious in the film. No one's trying to save anybody. They're actually just going yeah, on and doing right. their own thing and people just ki- killed left and right. Also like even Logan, you know, even our superheroes Logan is, are getting yeah, man, fucking depressing, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I don't know if 2017, this is a symptom of what's going on right now. And obviously, I mean, if we look at what he was talking about in terms of like mother, we have to take care of mother earth and global warming and all that. Uh-huh. Definitely. But to have the fucking balls to go out and say, I'm going to use, you know, the story of creation and show you guys that we're just doing this over. Something has to change. Your revolutions aren't working. We need the mother of all revolutions to happen. Yeah. I thought that was brilliant. It's, it's fucked up. But at the same time, I mean, like I said, I can't recommend this to everyone. Or anyone. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a fun time watching this, but, you know, I'm looking forward to watching it again. I had a really good time. Absolutely. It's one of those ones that also benefits from discussion, much like the last two films we've covered. Talk to people about this. It's actually really fun to talk to people. Even if you hate it, defending why you hate it is a fun time. Defending why you like it can be a fun time if you approach it. I know, as we were saying earlier, our brains don't go that way. We don't want to put ourselves out there, but fuck it. Do it. Try it. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. (laughs) Take a risk. We had a good time. So that's it for me, man. Anything else you want to add or shall we close this out, sir? Let's close it out, man. All right, cool. So I want to thank you guys all for tuning in to uh, Atlantic SC's episode on Mother. I want to thank uh, Andrew for uh, prompting us in doing this. Uh, I want to say I'm sorry to Kevin Brackett. We were supposed to have him on for this episode, but we thought the better of it because he didn't particularly enjoy the film and we didn't want to talk him into a corner because that's not necessarily a fun episode to be on. But we have plans for having him on very, very soon and I'm really looking forward to it. Also, thank you to Colin Llewellyn for saying you know where's your mother fucking episode uh, that was really great it's, it's kind of fun to, to, to get that that uh, that feedback from people so yeah big shout outs to everyone I want to give a shout out to uh, Chris Maynard who's been uh, really kind of cool we've been exchanging uh, uh, on Twitter a little bit also and, and DMs and whatnot. big hi to Mike Dennison and David Hart thank you again for having me on the Grand Gesture uh, podcast talking about night and day big thank you and shout out to Sheila I want your foot to heal and we're giving you big hugs and kisses from both Lee and I I'll let him carry that out, but that's a big kiss from me. Yeah, yeah, recover. And so <laughs> recover well, yeah. And uh, thanks again to Mike Ross and Neil Ramji over at the Film Seekers Podcast. I want to thank them very much because they've been giving us a lot of good feedback, a lot of great shout-outs. Uh, tune into their podcast, the Film Seekers Podcast. Although I think it's long, it's worth every minute, and uh, I'm looking forward to episode three, hopefully. Their take on Mother was a really fun one, and also their take on Detroit. I think they had a lot of good points that they wanted to make. Absolutely. And so thank you guys again for all the encouragement really really great Lee yeah no yeah I'll just I'll chime in again with the the film seekers again thank you and this episode their latest episode which was the one on mother they compared me to Susie Dent uh, from 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 the TV show Countdown, uh, which is fucking hilarious. She's like the back, like the the well of knowledge in the background, which is fucking I don't know, man. That's a surreal compliment, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, you can see me and uh, read more of my shit at Big Pick Reviews on Twitter and www.bigpicturereviews.co.uk. Actually, I do want people to read my my initial review of Mother because if you want to cramp down all the thoughts I, even when i went back to it i, I 
kind of accidentally mentioned the absurdism elements before I had even yep. formulated that side of the debate. It, it's all kind of there very neatly on revisiting, and I'm quite happy with it. So definitely check that out. And hopefully, I mean, we've got some great shit lined up for this show this year. So I'm really excited to move on. Yep. In the meantime, do check us out there and uh, give us some feedback. What do you think of Mother? Did you did you love it? Did you hate it? Did you did did we offend you? <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry. It can't, it's an offensive film. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, it can be. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, our next episode is going to be on Blade Runner. You can find me, Jason, at Atlantic SC on Twitter. Please go give our Facebook page a like. It's Atlantic uh, Screen Connection Podcast. And also go give our Instagram a like. If you guys uh, want to find it, it's Atlantic SC Podcast on Instagram. Also, if you guys want to send in comments or whatnot, uh, you can uh, send our send it to our email address, Podcast at gmail.com. We're looking forward to continuing our conversation with you guys. That's it for us this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye. conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.